You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is Lecture 2 of the cycle according to Matthew, The Gospel of Christ's Humanity by Rudolf Steiner. In the first few lectures of this series, I will need to repeat certain explanations of Luke's Gospel. A brief comparison of these two Gospels will help us to understand certain events in the life of Christ Jesus. For an esoteric understanding of Matthew, it is most important to realize that the physical body of the individual described here was descended from Abraham through three times fourteen generations and inherited a concentrated extract of the ethnic character of Abraham's descendants, the Hebrews. We must also understand that spiritual science recognizes this individuality as that of Zarathustra. Yesterday we described the circumstances surrounding Zarathustra's activity. Today we will need to discuss certain worldviews and ideas that dominated Zarathustra's circles. One of these, which can be considered part of the teachings of the original Zarathustra, is especially significant, and a few comments are enough to show the deep foundations of the whole post-Atlantean worldview. Even superficial historical accounts tell us that Zarathustra's teachings are based on the two principles of Ahura Mazda, the good being of light, and Araman, the evil being of darkness. Exoteric descriptions of this religious system emphasize that both principles can be traced back to the common principle of Zaruana Akarini, usually translated as uncreated time. Therefore it can be said that Zarathustra's teachings ultimately lead back to the archetypal principle of time flowing quietly in the reaches of the cosmos, Inherent in this interpretation is the impossibility of asking how the source of that circulating time. It is important to know that while we can speak of a first principle in the cosmos, inquiring about its origins remains unjustified. Superficial, abstract human thinking almost never accepts a cause as ultimate and insists on repeatedly asking about the cause of the cause, tracing the concepts backward through eternity, so to speak. A true foundation in spiritual science, however, involves thorough meditation to understand that the question of origin must stop somewhere, and that if we persist in asking about causes, after a certain point we are merely playing with thoughts. I pointed to this epistemological situation in my outline of esoteric science. When we see ruts in a road and ask what caused them, the answer may be wagon wheels. We could continue by asking where the wheels are and why the wagon made the ruts, to which the answer might be because it drove over the road. If we then ask why it drove over the road, the answer might be to transport someone. Ultimately, however, it comes down to the person's decision to use the wagon, and if we do not stop with the driver's intention, but continue to ask what caused it, we miss the real meaning and become trapped in a game of questions. This is also true of larger questions relating to a worldview. At some point they have to stop. 
in Zarathustra's teachings, they stop. That stopping point is uniformly flowing time. Let me read that again. In Zarathustra's teachings, that stopping point is uniformly flowing time. Zarathustra divides time into two principles, or rather allows two principles to emerge from it. The good light principle, which I described quite specifically yesterday as the Ahura Mazda principle, and an evil, dark, or Araman principle. This ancient Persian view is based on a tremendously profound idea that all evil in the world, everything we describe as dark in physical imagery, was not originally dark or evil. I said yesterday that in the thinking of the ancient Persians, the wolf, which often represents wildness or evil or the work of the Aramonic principle, has been corrupted into an Aramonic tool because it has been left to its own devices. In this sense, the wolf represents the decline of an incontrovertibly good being. In the ancient Persian or Aryan view, evil arises when a previously benevolent element retains the same form later on. That is, rather than changing and progressing, it remains adapted to an earlier time. The ancient Persians viewed evil and darkness as the consequence of good remaining the same rather than changing appropriately with time. The conflict between good and evil arises from the encounter between an outdated but enduring form of being and one that has advanced. Evil, therefore, is not absolute evil but misplaced good. It is good that has outlived its time. Hence present evil is the appearance of an event that preserves the past. When earlier and later elements do not yet conflict, undifferentiated time that is not yet separated into individual moments continues to flow. This profoundly significant view is the fundamental principle of the early post-Atlantean Zarathustrian philosophy. Seen correctly, it includes the Iranian mindset we described yesterday, which emerged especially among ethnic groups that adopted Zarathustra's teachings. They all acknowledged the inevitability of two opposing factors, which emerge from the uniform flow of time to confront each other and resolve their conflict within time itself. These peoples realized that it was necessary for the new to emerge and for the old to be preserved, and they understood that both cosmic and earthly goals are advanced by balancing the old and the new. As described here, however, this view forms the basis not only of Zarathustrian worldviews, but also of all higher development. The impact of Zarathustra's teachings is not limited to the times and places we described yesterday. We will soon see how profoundly this view of the contrast between old and new infiltrated and influenced all subsequent times. Zarathustra was profoundly influential, not only because he attained the highest level of initiation possible in his time, but also because he mentored two disciples I have mentioned in other lectures. To one he taught all of the mysteries of the sense-perceptible space around us. In other words, the mysteries of simultaneity. To the other he taught the complete mysteries of flowing time, evolution and development. I said that at a certain point in a teacher-pupil relationship, such as that of Zarathustra and his great disciples, teachers gain the ability to sacrifice part of their own makeup for the sake of their students. In this incarnation, Zarathustra donated his own astral and etheric bodies to these two disciples, though his individuality, his innermost being, remained intact and continued to incarnate repeatedly. 
and unlike ordinary human astral bodies, the astral garment that clothed the early post-Atlantean Zarathustra was so completely imbued with his wisdom that it did not disintegrate after death, but remained intact as sometimes happens with profoundly enlightened individuals. The disciple to whom Zarathustra had taught the mysteries of perceptible space and its simultaneous contents was reincarnated in the personality historically known as Thoth, or Hermes Trismegistus. Esoteric research tells us that the mission of this reincarnated disciple was not only to consolidate everything he had received from Zarathustra in a previous incarnation, but also to receive Zarathustra's intact astral body through a process of quote-unquote infiltration or incorporation possible in the holy mystery centers. Thus Zarathustra's disciple was reborn as the founder of Egyptian culture, incorporating the astral body of Zarathustra himself. In other words, one member of Zarathustra's constitution was immediately present in Hermes Trismegistus. In combination with everything Hermes had received as Zarathustra's disciple, this member produced all the great and significant elements of Egyptian culture. Naturally, before this could happen, an ethnic group had to be prepared to provide an appropriate physical body for Zarathustra's missionary or messenger. Those who took the more southerly route from Atlantis and preserved much of the Atlantean clairvoyance in eastern Africa were called upon to provide fertile ground for Hermes, Zarathustra's pupil. The essence of the Egyptian folk soul merged with Hermes's contributions and led to the development of a specifically Egyptian culture. Consider, for example, the precious gift of the mysteries of simultaneous spatial existence that Hermes had received from his teacher Zarathustra. As a result of this gift, Hermes's constitution incorporated the most important elements that Zarathustra had mastered. I have often mentioned that Zarathustra typically taught his followers that the light of the sun is its outer physical body. He showed them that this body is merely the outer garment of an exalted spiritual being. Zarathustra had entrusted Hermes with the mysteries of space underlying the entire natural world, the mysteries of all that exists simultaneously yet passes from epoch to epoch, each time in a new form. Hermes mastered all elements that continue to develop after originating with the sun, and he impressed this knowledge on souls who recalled observing the sun mysteries of Atlantis through abilities that were natural at that time, at the time. Hermes's activity must be seen in the context of a progressive line of evolution. Both Hermes and the souls destined to receive his wisdom had continued to evolve in a positive direction. The situation was different for Zarathustra's second disciple. Because he had received the mysteries of time, he had to experience the tension between old and new as an evolutionary state of opposition or polarization. Zarathustra also contributed part of his own makeup to a subsequent incarnation of this second disciple. At a certain stage of reincarnation, the bearer of Zarathustra's time wisdom also received his etheric body, just as the other disciple had received the sacrifice of Zarathustra's astral body. This second disciple reincarnated as Moses. As a very young child, Moses absorbed Zarathustra's preserved etheric body into his own constitution. Religious scriptures are based on esotericism, 
and in mysterious ways they point to secrets revealed by esoteric research. To receive Zarathustra's etheric body, Moses had to undergo a unique experience, symbolized in the biblical account of how Moses was placed in a box and submerged in the river, a remarkable image of initiation. As we know, initiation involves cutting candidates off from the outer world for a certain period of time while they are imbued with spiritual gifts. While Moses was cut off from the world in this way, Zarathustra's intact etheric body was incorporated into his constitution. As a result, Moses received the gift of the wondrous time wisdom that Zarathustra had imparted to him during an earlier incarnation and learned to communicate it in images adapted to his own people. The great images that appear in Genesis are externalized imaginations of the time knowledge that originated with Zarathustra. That wisdom was reborn in Moses and consolidated in his inner being through the gift of Zarathustra's etheric body. The founding of a cultural movement is a very significant event in the evolution of humanity, and the mere presence of an initiate founder is not enough to bring it about. When a great individuality provides the seed for a new culture, it must be planted in the fertile ground of a suitable ethnic group. Before we consider the ethnic soil that received the seeds Zarathustra entrusted to Moses, we would also do well to consider a unique aspect of Mosaic wisdom. We saw that in a previous incarnation as Zarathustra's disciple, Moses had received Zarathustra's time wisdom and the mysteries of the polarity between old and new. Before Moses could introduce this wisdom into human evolution, his own wisdom had to contrast with the distinctly different wisdom of Hermes. Hermes received Zarathustra's direct wisdom, so to speak, that is, sun wisdom, the mystery of the being who dwells in the sun's outer physical body of light. The wisdom that Hermes received took a direct route. Moses, on the other hand, received the wisdom preserved in the denser human etheric body. Mosaic wisdom not only considers what flows from the sun being, but also comprehends opposition to the sun's light and warmth. It understands the possibility of incorporating, yet remaining uncorrupted by, the old, dense and consolidated element that emerges from the earth. Mosaic wisdom is earth wisdom which is absorbed into sun wisdom while retaining its earthly nature. Moses received the mysteries pertaining to how earth, earthly human beings and earthly substantiality evolved after the sun separated from the earth. Considering the situation esoterically, we realize that there is a stark contrast between the teachings of Hermes and the wisdom of Moses. Admittedly, certain modern views of such issues seem to be based on the principle that all cows are grey at night. Seeing only similarities, these views delight in discovering parallels, for example, between the teachings of Hermes Trismegistus and those of Moses. Here a trinity, there a trinity, here a fourfold quality, there a fourfold quality. This approach will get us nowhere. It is like trying to teach botany by showing people the similarities between a rose and a carnation but not the differences. It is essential to understand the differences between beings and schools of wisdom. Hence we must realize that although both originated with Zarathustra, Moses' wisdom was completely different from that of Hermes. Zarathustra gave these two pupils very different revelations, the unity of his original wisdom divided and manifested in different ways. 
When we are receptive to hermetic wisdom, the origin of the cosmos and light's role in it are revealed to us. Hermetic wisdom, however, lacks any concept of how the old influences the new, how the past conflicts with the present, or how darkness opposes light. In other words, earth wisdom, which teaches us how the earth and its human inhabitants evolved after separating from the sun, is essentially absent from hermetic wisdom. The particular task of mosaic wisdom, on the other hand, was to allow us to understand the earth after its separation from the sun. Moses contributed earth wisdom and Hermes contributed sun wisdom. As Moses recalled everything he had received from Zarathustra, earth wisdom, the knowledge of human evolution on earth, was kindled within him. Moses began with the earth, so to speak. But because the earth once separated from the sun, it contains a shadow of the sun's essence. Consequently, Mosaic earth wisdom had to encounter hermetic sun wisdom in physical existence. This encounter is evident even in exoteric writings. Moses' birth in Egypt, his people's sojourn in Egypt, and their contact with Hermes' Egyptians are all exoteric reflections of the interaction and overlap between sun wisdom and earth wisdom, both of which had their source in Zarathustra but flowed into very different streams in human evolution. Any wisdom related to the methods of the mystery centers requires a unique means of expressing the deepest secrets of human and non-human events. In my lectures on Genesis in Munich, I pointed out that humankind's deepest secrets and the great truths that encompass cosmic phenomena are extremely difficult to express in generally accessible exoteric language. We are often imprisoned in our words, which have acquired specific concise meanings over long periods of time. When we approach the great truths revealed in our souls and attempt to cast them in words, they resist the feeble instrument of language, which in certain respects is grossly inadequate to the task. Undoubtedly the most trivial expression since the beginning of the nineteenth century, a triviality also repeated countless times more recently, is the claim that it ought to be possible to express any real truth in simple terms, and that the standard imposed by language and its idioms is adequate for determining whether a person possesses the truth. Such a statement, however, simply confirms that the speakers do not know the real truth, but only truths, in quotes, conveyed to them through language over the centuries, which they are now casting in slightly different forms. Anyone who makes such a statement considers language completely adequate and fails to sense how others may struggle with it, But whenever something great and powerful needs to be said, our souls are all too aware of this struggle. In Munich I pointed out how this difficult struggle with language appears in my Rosicrucian mystery play, The Portal of Initiation, at the end of the first scene in the meditation room. The feeble instrument of language is only a minimally adequate vehicle for what the Hierophant tries to convey to the pupil. Because the holy mysteries have always had to express the most profound secrets, students of the mystery schools have always known that language is a weak medium, less suited to esoteric purposes than to conveying exoteric knowledge. Hence the age-old search in the mystery centers for ways to express the soul's esoteric experiences, for expressing mystery wisdom, images acquired by looking out into the great expanse of space, the signs of the zodiac, for example, or the rising of a particular star, or the eclipse of one star by another at a particular point in time, are much more apt. 
such images are well suited to expressing certain events in the human soul. Let me explain briefly why this is so. Let's say, for example, that a human soul matures enough to go through a great experience that must then be communicated to the surrounding culture, or perhaps an ethnic group or some other large portion of humankind has evolved and matured enough to receive this individual who may approach from a completely different direction. If we want to express the unique synchronicity of the culmination of an individual's development with the same degree of development of a folk soul, no words could sufficiently impress the significance of such an event on our feelings. So we would express it like this. The synchronicity of an individual's greatest strength with that of an individual folk soul is like the sun in the sign of Leo. The image of Leo, the sign of the lion, is a metaphor for these coinciding strengths in human evolution. Images derived from the cosmos, from the courses of heavenly bodies, have been used throughout history to represent spiritual events within humankind. When we use an heavenly event, such as the sun rising in a particular sign of the zodiac, to symbolize an event in human evolution, it is easy for shallow minds to reverse this relationship and say that in the past the mythical processes of the stars shrouded all events related to human history. <clears throat> the truth, however, is that human events are expressed in images taken from the constellations of heavenly bodies. The reality is always the opposite of what trivial minds would like it to be. We should be filled with awe at this relationship between the cosmos and the great events of human evolution. In fact, there is an esoteric connection between cosmic existence as a whole and human events. What happens on earth reflects what happens in the cosmos. Thus, in certain respects, the meeting between hermetic sun wisdom and mosaic earth wisdom in Egypt reflected cosmic events. Imagine certain effects radiating from the sun toward the earth and others radiating back from the earth into space. Where they intersect in space is not a matter of indifference. The consequences of their meeting will differ depending on how far their intersection is from the earth. Now imagine the meeting between hermetic wisdom and mosaic wisdom in the ancient Egyptian mystery centers. According to our spiritual scientific cosmology, this event was comparable to one that took place in the cosmos. After the original separation of the earth from the sun, the earth remained united with the moon for a time. Later, part of the earth moved out into space to form what is now the moon. In other words, the earth sent part of itself back out into space toward the sun. We find a similar process in the strange encounter in Egypt between mosaic earth wisdom and hermetic sun wisdom. As mosaic wisdom continued to develop after its separation from sun wisdom, it developed into a science of the earth and the human being, that is, earthly wisdom. In the course of this development, mosaic wisdom grew outward to meet the sun. To a certain extent it received and absorbed the wisdom coming directly from the sun, after which it continued to develop independently. Hence Moses remained in Egypt only long enough to receive what he needed. Then the exodus occurred so that his earth wisdom could digest and further develop the sun wisdom it had absorbed. We must therefore distinguish two stages in mosaic wisdom. One stage when it developed in the womb of hermetic wisdom, which it absorbed from all sides, and a post-separation stage, when it continued to develop independently after the exodus from Egypt. 
Moses was born with the wisdom Zarathustra had given to him as the earth initiate, and he was meant to find the way back to the sun after imbuing this legacy with hermetic wisdom. We are told that Hermes Trismegistus, later known as Mercury or Thoth, introduced art and science, exoteric knowledge and worldly art, in forms appropriate to his people. The wisdom Moses implanted in worldly culture also had to reach a certain level of development in ways appropriate to the ethnic group that harbored it. But Moses was to achieve the Hermes-Mercury perspective in a different, even opposite way that developed hermetic wisdom on its way back to the sun. Let me read that. Let's see. Let me read that again. The wisdom Moses implanted in worldly culture also had to reach a certain level of development in ways appropriate to the ethnic group that harbored it. But Moses was to achieve the Hermes-Mercury perspective in a different, even opposite way that developed hermetic wisdom on its way back to the sun. In a direct way, as if radiated from the sun, Moses had received something of what Hermes had to offer, but he then had to redevelop it independently and imbue it with the sun element. The independent development of Mosaic wisdom occurred in three distinct steps that are best portrayed in terms of cosmic processes. When events on Earth radiate back into space, they encounter first Mercury, then Venus, and then the Sun. Parenthesis, we know that the Venus of conventional astronomy is called Mercury in esoteric terminology, while what is commonly known as Mercury is the Venus of esotericism. Parenthesis. The first of these three steps is shown in the development of the Hebrews up to the time and reign of David. He is described as the royal psalmist, a divine prophet, who is not only a man of God, but also a sword-bearer and a musician. He is portrayed as the Hermes, or Mercurius, of the Hebrews. In David, the Hebrew ethnic stream had advanced to the stage of producing an independent Hermes. In other words, Hermetic wisdom had reached the region of Mercury on its return to the sun. Anything that radiates from earth toward the sun encounters Venus at a certain point. Similarly, the centuries-old mosaic wisdom of the Hebrews encountered a completely different element that flowed into it from the other side, from Asia, during the Babylonian captivity. At this stage in its development, Hebrew wisdom encountered a weakened form of Zarathustra's wisdom which had persisted in esoteric schools of the Chaldeans and Babylonians. During the Babylonian captivity, mosaic wisdom united with the esoteric knowledge that had found its way to Mesopotamia. This event was different from the Mercury stage in that Moses directly encountered an element that had once proceeded from the sun itself. In the centers that housed Hebrew wisdom during the Babylonian captivity, Moses, not the person but the wisdom he left to his people, merged directly with the sun aspect of his wisdom. At that time the reincarnated Zarathustra was teaching in the Mesopotamian mystery centers which were available to Hebrew sages. Around the time of the Babylonian captivity, Zarathustra, who had relinquished some of his wisdom, was teaching in order to regain part of it. Zarathustra had reincarnated repeatedly, and in this particular incarnation, as Zarathas, or Nazarathos. He became the teacher of the captive Jews, who were familiar with the holy places of the region. Thus, as the current of Mosaic wisdom continued to flow, it encountered what Zarathustra himself had become after moving from the more distant mystery schools to the Mesopotamian centers, where he taught the initiated Chaldean teachers, 
and fructified the ancestral mosaic wisdom of the Hebrews in his incarnation as Zarathas or Nazarathos. Such was the destiny of mosaic wisdom. It originated with Zarathustra but later travelled to a foreign land. The reunion during the Babylonian captivity was like a blindfolded sun being carried down to earth and having to retrace its steps and rediscover what it had lost. Zarathustra, like all initiates, depended on the bodily instrument into which he incarnated. In his earlier incarnation, Zarathustra had expressed the full essence of the sun and communicated it to Hermes and Moses. But in the Mesopotamian mystery schools, where he was also Pythagoras's teacher, he taught in the only way possible in that particular body. In the 6th century BC, he needed a Mesopotamian body in order to teach Pythagoras and the Hebrew scholars, as well as the Chaldean and Babylonian sages who had the capacity to hear him. Zarathustra's teachings as Zarathas were like the sun's light reflected to earth by Venus. Thus Zarathustra's wisdom had to appear in a diluted version instead of its original form. Although it would reappear later in its original form, Zarathustra first had to acquire a suitable body whose development can be described somewhat as follows. We said yesterday that there were three different ethnic soul types in Asia, the Indians in the south, the Iranians and the Turanians in northern Asia. We pointed out that these three types arose because the northern current of Atlantean migration settled in Asia and then spread out in various directions. But another current which passed through Africa also reached as far as the Turanian region. The conflux of the northern and African currents gave rise to a unique ethnic mixture from which the Hebrews later emerged as the result of very specific events. We also described how decadent, superficial and atavistic astral-etheric clairvoyance became evil in certain ethnic groups. Among the people who became the Hebrews, however, this clairvoyance was turned inward and took a completely different direction. Instead of working outwardly in the form of lower astral remnants of ancient Atlantean clairvoyance, in the Hebrews it developed in the right way, and became an active organizing force within the human being. Among the Hebrews, this force, rather than being expressed in decadent, atavistic clairvoyance as it was in the Turanians, became productive and transformative. It reorganized and perfected the physical body in relation to consciousness. Thus we can say that the forces at work in the physical nature of the Hebrews, reproduced from generation to generation through heredity, were no longer useful for external perception and had to enter a different arena if they were to remain in their correct element. The forces that had once given the Atlanteans the power of spiritual perception of space and spiritual realms and later declined among the Turanians into a remnant of clairvoyance were now directed inwardly in the Hebrew people. The divine spiritual aspects of Atlantean culture now worked internally in the Hebrews, developing organs and shaping the body. In the blood of the Hebrews, this element flared up as divine consciousness within the human being. It was as if the Atlantean clairvoyant perception of the cosmos was turned completely inward and became the organ-based consciousness of Yahweh, the God within. The members of this little ethnic group felt imbued and impregnated by the God who pervaded space. They recognized this indwelling God united in the pulsing of their blood. Yesterday we contrasted the Iranians and Turanians. 
If we now contrast the Turanians and the Hebrews, we realize that the decadent element in the Turanians later became progressive when it pulsed in the blood of the Hebrews. Atlantean clairvoyant perception had perceived the divinity behind all beings. This divinity now became concentrated in a single point, so to speak, and was passed down through the blood of generations, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on, guiding their destinies. A formerly outer element assumed a completely different form. It was turned inward, no longer seen, but sensed and experienced. Instead of various individual names, it was called by a single name, I am the I am. During Atlantean times, people experienced it anywhere that they were not, that is, in the world outside them. Now, however, they experienced it within, in the capital I, and in the flow of their bloodline. The great God of the world had become the God of generations of Hebrew people, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was the beginning of Hebrew culture. Today we simply made a preliminary point about the blood of this people, which internalized all the spiritual factors that had previously pervaded human beings from outside. Tomorrow we will consider this culture's unique esoteric mission in human evolution. We will see the mysterious events that unfolded during its early stages and learn about the unique character of this ethnic group from which Zarathustra received the body to the being we know as Jesus of Nazareth. The end of Lecture 2, given in Bern, September 2, 1910.